Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. An energy transformation is underway in the United States with clean energy and energy efficiency reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. Yet the advantages of clean energy aren't being enjoyed equally throughout the country. Clean energy development has lagged in older, densely built urban areas. Low-income neighborhoods, in particular, have seen relatively less investment in renewables and can find it harder to take advantage of technologies like rooftop solar that can lower electricity bills. There are many efforts underway to address these equity challenges, for example, through community energy programs. Yet fundamental hurdles to energy transformation remain. One of the most deeply embedded, yet least understood of these hurdles is zoning, or the rules to determine the types of development that can take place in a given neighborhood. Zoning regulations often date back decades and can prevent the siting of clean energy infrastructure and lock communities into old energy paradigms. Conversely, progressive zoning rules can promote clean development. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with Sarah Bronin, a law professor at the University of Connecticut, who was until recently chair of the City of Hartford, Connecticut's Planning and Zoning Commission. In her role, she led efforts to rezone parts of the city for greater social and energy equity. She'll talk about the interplay of zoning and energy and about efforts to reform zoning regulations. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Now, zoning isn't a subject that comes immediately to mind when thinking about the challenge of transitioning to a cleaner energy system, but it can be a barrier to the development of clean infrastructure. Broadly, what is the connection between energy transition and zoning? So zoning affects our ability to create transportation efficient cities and create energy efficient cities. It can enable both of those things, but for the most part, as you say, it doesn't. So for example, uh, zoning in a lot of places does not allow renewable energy to be installed or it, particularly in older cities to be retrofitted onto existing buildings. Uh, Overlaying on top of that might be historic regulations that, that uh, add to uh, the zoning regime. In addition, zoning laws often lock into place transportation inefficient uh, development. So for example, zoning laws often require a minimum parking spaces for particular kinds of uses, they might require too much pavement and not enough uh, green green space and, and greenery cools a city. Uh, they might totally ignore walking and biking infrastructure and thus encourage more cars to uh, be used. And so in a lot of different ways, zoning has a link between whether we are uh, using more transportation and particularly using more cars and therefore emitting more greenhouse gases and using more energy, um, as well as even the energy implements themselves. Now, you were until recently chair of the Planning and Zoning Commission of the city of Hartford, uh, where zoning reform has recently taken place. What challenges did the city face specifically and to what extent uh, have reforms improved access to clean energy? So Hartford is one of those post-industrial cities. It's about 125,000 people. It's a lot like many other cities around the country. In fact, it was just identified a couple of years ago as uh, one of the most demographically reflective of the entire country, along with New Haven. So so Hartford is a story uh, of, of um, historic neighborhoods, uh, historic fabric, 
uh, and in addition, you know, some new development that's mostly infill within our city. And the challenge here has really been trying to figure out how we take advantage of new technologies and new trends in thinking about city development and in energy uh, in particular, uh, and to try to make sure that we are not, through our laws, actually thwarting progress in those regards. So for example, in our zoning reforms, so we, we, we adopted a whole new zoning code in 2016. We did a complete overhaul of the zoning code. And among other things, what we did was we enabled uh, wall-mounted uh, wind energy and roof-mounted solar in every zoning district, which is, as far as I know, the first city to, to really do that um, on such a, a wide scale. It's all as of right. That means it's permitted without any special conditions. Um, and there are other kinds of solar uh, and wind allowed as well. So in addition to all of that, uh, just across all of the districts, there are other districts that allow for freestanding solar installations, uh, even uh, large-scale wind facilities along one of our interstate corridors. So we're trying to think ahead in terms of renewable energy. We're also thinking in terms of energy efficiency. And if you look at uh, you know, the, the biggest thing in a city like Hartford uh, is the, the biggest barrier, I think, to energy efficiency is the fact that we have such a large amount of pavement and so much of our land is already developed because, again, we were developed at a time when um, development was more concentrated, which is actually a good thing, as I hope I'll get a chance to talk about in a little bit. But it also means that there's just an awful lot of pavement. Um, so what we've noticed uh, in the research is that trees have a cooling effect on cities. So we have a huge urban heat island effect in some of our neighborhoods. And through the zoning code, what we are trying to do is um, have tree canopy coverage requirements and also just generally de-emphasize the need to pave and to prevent people from overpaving their lot their lots. And in doing so, we hope to actually cool the whole city and enable greater energy efficiency efficiencies within individual um, housing and commercial um, environments. Now, a couple of moments ago, you, you mentioned uh, new new rules that would allow solar and wind installations on properties in, in, in the city. Were the old rules, or did the old rules explicitly prohibit that type of development, or there wasn't enough of a, a, a kind of a path for them to be developed? Well, that's a great question. The, the truth is, is that most zoning codes don't even mention renewable energy infrastructure at all. So when zoning codes do require for, uh, or, or when an applicant does come to a zoning commission and seeks to, let's say, install a solar collector, they'll have to look at the zoning rules for things like air conditioners and other equipment, or if they uh, the, the property owner wants for the solar installation to be freestanding, the zoning commission may have to look at general rules for accessory structures. Trying to fit those rules to the the, the different uh, kind of animal that is a renewable energy installation has often proven problematic. So while many zoning codes don't expressly reject renewable energy infrastructure, they don't specifically embrace it either. And what that does is it causes enough confusion that people are deterred from applying for these kinds of things. Or you see stories in the paper where somebody has spent six months, a year, sometimes more, and tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees just trying to get a single um, installation uh, underway. How much interest 
have you seen in clean energy in the densely populated areas of, of the city that we're talking about, low-income neighborhoods in particular? Has there been much interest, for example, in community-scale renewable energy? Yeah, so so Hartford, for those of you who don't know, is a very low-income city. It's often uh, named as one of the, the the poorest cities in the country. So it's a it's an appropriate question to ask. You know, what 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 do people in Hartford think about uh, clean energy? And I have to say that there's a tremendous interest in in clean energy and in energy efficiency in our community and among our families. The question, though, is access. So you raise this issue of community energy. Um, and I think that is one way for people in, in cities like ours, rather densely built on smaller lots uh, with buildings that may or may not be suitable for a, a full-scale solar installation. Um, we're seeing that community energy is uh, an, uh, could be an important avenue to taking advantage of that interest and bringing clean energy to people who actually really want it. And it, community energy, for those uh, listening in who may not know, is is a way of sharing energy, uh, basically installing, let's say, a neighborhood uh, series of solar panels or maybe even a neighborhood fuel cell or a microgrid and enabling people to buy uh, energy from a, 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 that communal source and to share in, in the benefits of having distributed generation nearby. It's most appropriate, it's best used when people live in places that physically don't enable them, them to each have their own uh, clean energy installation. And Hartford, with its small lots and um, and uh, sort of smaller building size, row houses and that kind of thing, is actually a perfect candidate for community energy. Unfortunately, our state does not allow for community energy to be adopted wide on a wide scale. There's a, been a small pilot program for uh, shared solar, but that has really been very, very limited, and we haven't even seen projects actually emerge from that program yet. So we're hoping to engage residents more in advocacy at the state house for exactly uh, that kind of reform. Now, to put this into the current context, obviously, in the past year, we've really seen um, a scaling up or an intensification of the national dialogue on equity, uh, and that has spilled over into the conversation on energy and environmental equity as well. Let's talk about the economic impact, and what is the economic impact, or what economic impact does the lack of access to clean energy have on minority and uh, low-income communities? Well, the term that we like to use in thinking about this uh, this issue is utility security or utility insecurity. And it, that really relates to the amount of money that a family or a household is spending on their energy costs. Believe it or not, many of our families spend an enormous percentage of their income on energy costs. Connecticut has some of the highest rates in the country uh, for energy usage, and uh, it really has become an unsustainable burden on our families. Clean energy would enable them, and access to clean energy would enable them to have more control over their own costs, and it would also reduce the amount uh, that they're spending on, on energy each month. Uh, electricity costs are, are, just, uh, are just an enormous burden. So there really is a really important link between access to, to clean energy, access to energy efficiency improvements, 
and and equity. And just on the latter, the energy efficiency improvements, uh, many states, Connecticut is one of them, have energy efficiency programs where homeowners can can ask the state or ask utilities to, to come in and do a subsidized energy efficiency audit. Well, in a place like Hartford, which has majority renters, it, there's a barrier to uh, weatherizing and making more energy efficient their individual housing units. While renters could uh, potentially ask through the existing programs, they don't because uh, the, it's really the homeowners uh, who have to approve these kinds of retrofits. So in addition to looking at zoning laws on, on, on uh, you know, and, and also just looking at the general uh, questions of who's providing access and how do people get access to clean energy, uh, these these individual funding programs and their decisions need to be better targeted to renters and others who um, simply don't have uh, access through the more traditional routes. Now, there's also a history of discriminatory zoning that is relevant to everything that we're talking about today to access to clean energy uh, that you've you've done quite a lot of work uh, on. What are these uh, discriminatory practices and, and how do they also impact energy development? I think to answer this question, we probably have to look back to the dawn of zoning, which was about 100 years ago uh, when uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce issued a series of regulations to states, calling it the State Zoning Enabling Act, and it was states that then allowed local governments to enact zoning codes. Through these zoning codes, many local governments engaged in what can only be described today as as discriminatory practices. Sometimes uh, they were explicitly discriminatory. So you had zoning codes like Louisville's uh, in Kentucky, which was struck down in the in 1917 by the Supreme Court um, for explicitly zoning on the basis of race. But after that, you know, even though they the communities couldn't zone on the basis of race or class, uh, they nonetheless did so. And one of the big links uh, between uh, the kind of zoning that has discriminatory effects but may not look discriminatory on its face uh, is the minimum lot size requirement. Zoning codes control everything that gets built. They can control lots, structures, and uses. Um, but when it comes to controlling lots, most zoning codes around the country say that if you're going to build a single-family house, it has to be on a certain minimum lot size. When you're building a community with minimum lot sizes of, let's say, half an acre or an acre, and sometimes more, you are building what is essentially sprawl. And you're building places that people can't get around on bike or on foot. So this is going back to this idea of transportation inefficient communities. When you build this kind of, uh, when you develop land in this kind of way, you're really preventing people who don't have access to cars, uh, people who can't afford to purchase a large amount of land, uh, so you're, you're excluding them from those kinds of communities. So the the link to me is really um, the the uh, sprawl, the the issue of sprawl, the issue of uh, minimum lot size, land use, uh, minimum parking requirements is another thing that we can talk about um, if you if you if you'd like. Um, but but all of that makes for a transportation inefficient world, and it also uh, has. Uh, discriminatory impacts, and those are well-documented. Now, I also wanted to bring up the point here that you are involved in a, an organization, actually one that you established in Connecticut called Desegregate Connecticut, uh, which is actually working on some of these issues, uh, discriminatory zoning practices that exist in the state. Tell, tell me a little bit more about what's going on with, with that group. 
So Desegregate Connecticut uh, is online at desegregatect.org. And and we have developed over the summer of 2020, uh, assembling a group of like-minded people who really believe that land use laws in our state and actually across the country, but we'll focus on Connecticut first, uh, but land use laws in our state have a discriminatory impact. And what we're really narrowly focused on is housing and housing opportunity, access to resources, um, and the, the, the fact that too many of our, uh, our people in Connecticut simply don't have a choice as to where they'll live. So the things that we're thinking about are housing diversity, trying to create a diverse uh, housing stock. Right now, it's predominantly single-family homes on large lots, just like I was was describing, uh, make transportation in efficient communities. Uh, housing supply to try to make sure that we are generating uh, more housing than we are. Uh, much of the housing we would be generating is actually constrained by red tape, uh, and uh, that primarily comes from zoning. Um, and then finally, just improving the process for development, and that's probably something that zoning could use across the board. In Hartford, you changed uh, the zoning rules, and through Desegregate Connecticut, you're also working on a broader statewide effort to, to update zoning rules as well. Per your experience, how have stakeholders from, from residents to politicians responded to these calls for zoning reform? So I'll start with Hartford first. Uh, we started uh, our zoning reform effort in 2014 in earnest and really just started consulting very widely within the city across a range of stakeholders, business owners, residents, neighborhood associations, environmental groups. And we all came to a consensus that what we needed in Hartford were uh, forward-looking land use rules that enabled development, but enabled it in a directed way. And the consensus that we built around that enabled us to adopt some of the biggest uh, reforms at, at the local level of almost any city in the country. We became the first city to completely abandon minimum parking requirements, which to me is one of the scourges of zoning codes nationally. Um, we also instituted a wide variety of environmentally friendly provisions from electric vehicle charging stations uh, requirements to uh, tree canopy coverage to stormwater infrastructure fees and so on. Um, so what we were trying, what it, it's, it's to other people, it seems like a big stretch that we were able to adopt those here. But from what we understood from people living here, there was a big interest in having a forward-looking environmental zoning code. And we adopted it unanimously in one night. Um, there was a, a almost unanimous enthusiastic support uh, at that public hearing, and we got a, a huge amount of, 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 again, community and neighborhood support. That's been a, 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 our local experience. Now, on the statewide reforms and the desegregate Connecticut reforms, we're tackling something that I think some people have a knee-jerk reaction to, and that is... Uh, the well, the, the knee-jerk reaction can be characterized by this phrase, not in my backyard, and probably most of your listeners have heard of this. We're trying to change not in my backyard to, I don't know if you want to call it yes in my backyard or you know, open communities or um, you know, how, however you want to put it. We want to change people's minds to say this knee-jerk reaction for greater housing, against greater housing diversity, against um 
uh, at sort of moving away from the exclusively single family zoning model is actually good for not only the existing owners of single family housing, but also for us as a state as a whole. So I would say at the local level, it was a different reaction because we had such a, an engaged process and because people really kind of coalesced around um, a particular set of ideals and those were embodied in our code versus the state level where I think people are more reluctant to uh, need more of that engagement and need more of, of a reason to move in the right direction. And I have a lot of confidence that eventually people will and they'll see that um, to have a, a level playing field across the state uh, will actually help Connecticut grow economically and will also protect the environment while also advancing equity. I think we can do all of that. Okay, let's continue with this idea of you know the path forward, what needs to be done. What uh, specific uh, reforms would you like to see in Connecticut and what reforms have you been pushing for through uh, De Desegregate Connecticut? So I mentioned the three priorities for Desegregate Connecticut, that is housing diversity, housing supply, and process improvement. And we've identified a suite of initial ideas as to how we might achieve that, and we'll be refining those through the fall in the hopes of advancing those in the regular session once the legislature returns in January 2021. But among those uh, generally proposals includes several proposals to use more efficiently uh, buildings that already exist and transportation infrastructure that already exists. So for example, what we think the state should do is to enable accessory apartment units, which are small independent living units uh, where one or two or maybe small families, uh, one or two people or maybe small families might live. We think that if the state says across the board, accessory dwelling units are allowed in any single family property, we will see a great increase in the number of uh, these small-scale dwelling units, which are first more affordable to people who want to live in high-resource communities than, it's, say, a, a detached single-family home. And second, uh, using the building stock that we already have, using the embodied energy of those buildings. Similarly, what we have suggested is that around transit nodes, development be uh, enabled and unlocked. So we're suggesting that within, let's say, a half mile radius of train stations and maybe a quarter mile radius of uh, your small town main street or your commercial corridors, we uh, as a state say that two to four unit dwellings are allowed or mixed income housing is, or, or sorry, mi mixed use housing is allowed where it might be uh, housing on top of retail stores. We also think um, that uh, in general, reducing excessive parking requirements is something that we have to look into as a state. Parking requirements vary widely across jurisdictions in, in Connecticut. Some cities even require two or more parking spaces for a single efficiency unit. Sometimes that means that the amount of parking that's required is larger than the efficiency unit that's actually being built. So what does that do to the cost of the unit? It drives up the cost, making it unaffordable and probably making it unattractive for a developer to build. So instead of encouraging people to build smaller units uh, to build a multifamily housing, we're discouraging it through parking requirements. And not only that, uh, parking requirements, researchers have shown, uh, actually encourage more driving. Because, of course, the more parking you provide, the more easy it is for somebody to own a car and say, oh, I'll just drive here instead of walk, even though it's a very short distance away. 
Um, so parking requirements subsidize driving, and again, that that's pretty pretty detrimental to um, to the environment. We're also suggesting some other things like training land use commissioners, standardizing permits so that apartment buildings don't go through uh, some what what are sometimes very contentious and uh, in some cases racist public hearings. Um, capping fees, so some towns charge uh, developers of affordable housing absolutely insane fees just to go through the application process. That's something that the state can remedy. Um, and just modernizing traffic and sewer standards. So these are some of the things that we that we are, have put out there. We're going to be refining those through the fall, but all of them really speak to uh, changing this mindset of developing primarily detached single-family housing, um, and 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 you know again also the mindset of just just building sprawl. We're we're using up so much of our farmland in the state. Um, and so much of our, our wooded areas, that's something other Yukon researchers have documented. O even over the last 10 years, it's been, it's been extreme, and we need to stop doing that in order to save our state. When you talk about uh, the requirements for parking for new developments, for example, um, obviously it would seem in the, in, in the inner city there's opportunities for public transportation, uh, both to serve people who need it and also reduce the, the need for cars and energy consumption through that through that means. Once you get out of the the uh, city centers, though, do these requirements one still apply, and two, um, are there really alternatives for people who may not want to use cars or cars as much to take advantage of public transport to be able to get around? Well. Of course, not every community in a state like Connecticut is served by transit, but you would be surprised at how many of our communities actually do have rail stations. In addition, we have a bus rapid transit system that was developed under the last governor with fixed transit stations. And I think that's really the key, is when the state has invested significant sums in a a, a, a fixed station, the bricks and mortar, um, you know, it's not doesn't move. It's not like a bus stop uh, where you just might, you can move the sign and you've moved the bus stop. Um, a fixed transit station is a significant investment. So, uh, so you're right that not every community has that opportunity. But I think what we found, um, especially with the recent uh, uh, construction of this bus rapid transit line, as well as the opening of the Hartford line, which in, is a uh, um, a rail line between New Haven and Springfield is that if you build this kind of infrastructure, people will use it. People are no longer happy just sitting in their cars. And I think you'll see in the coming years, if we embrace that trend, you'll see some of the suburbs that uh, may not have even thought to have one of these uh, types of transit stations start to ask for them because it will make the lives of the people who live there a lot easier because who wants to be stuck in traffic? You know, uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, I know that you have quite a bit of interest and in have done a lot of work on historic preservation. And I think it was in one of the papers that you'd written that I read prior to this podcast, I believe that's where it was, that it mentions that it's either Connecticut or Hartford has one of the highest concentrations of buildings that are designated as historic buildings uh, anywhere in the country. And there are particular 
challenges to clean energy development in and around these buildings because aesthetically, uh, anything that might compromise the integrity of the original architecture can be a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, that facet, uh, historic preservation, again, in the Northeast where there are so many older buildings uh, already there? Yeah. So actually, Connecticut is one of those states that has addressed this very question at the state level. So going back to our, our conversation about what level of government is best suited to enact wide scale reform. And in the case of solar energy and historic properties, Connecticut is one of the, the couple of states that says that a historic commission cannot deny a solar panel, uh, solar energy system from being installed unless that solar energy system will substantially impair the historic character and appearance of the district. What that means is that it's a very high bar for commission to deny solar uh, solar energy. Uh, and, and I think for that reason, Connecticut is actually ahead of most, almost every other state in saying at the state level, local commissions have, uh, cannot prevent these uh, things from being installed. So we've actually seen a huge amount of, of solar being installed in Connecticut because our local commissions, you know, you know, can't can't really deny it. That's different than some of the high profile denials that you see in, in DC and other places. Sarah, thanks very much for talking. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Today's guest has been Sarah Bronin, Faculty Director of the Center for Energy and Environmental Law at the University of Connecticut. Visit the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy website for more podcasts, policy digests, and blogs covering the gamut of the energy policy universe. If you'd like updates from the center in your inbox, sign up for our monthly email newsletter. The link is on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.